Welcome to Spotlights, the podcast for the domestic abuse sector. In this series, Safe Lives are shining a spotlight on people affected by domestic abuse who are also experiencing mental health problems. In this episode, Safe Lives Research Manager Martha Tomlinson met with Professor Jean Fetter. Based with the Bristol Medical School, Jean is an eminent domestic violence researcher with particular expertise in the response of healthcare professionals to survivors of partner abuse. In this podcast, Gene discusses his newly published paper on the PATH Research Trial, a project which has shown the benefits of equipping domestic abuse advocates to offer specialist psychological interventions. Gene also discusses other areas of promising practice, including the IRIS project. Jean, thank you so much for joining me on this podcast for our Spotlight series on mental health. So you've recently published the Psychological Advocacy Towards Healing, or PATH, paper. Could you tell us what PATH is about and what problems the approach is trying to address? PATH is a a programme for survivors of domestic violence who have crossed the threshold into, into a service, into a domestic abuse service, and it's trying to address their psychological health needs over and above the excellent advocacy and support that they're going to get anyway from that service. So what we identified as an unmet need was that even if, taking it from the perspective of of the health service, even if a doctor identifies um, that a woman is experiencing abuse, even if they do the right thing and refer them in to a domestic abuse service, which they can do through the IRIS program, which is a, another work, piece of work that we've done around getting doctors to identify and, and refer. Even then, and even if that woman gets good support around her safety and around legal issues, maybe housing issues, and around her children, she will have psychological health needs uh, Depression, anxiety, post-traumatic stress are all much greater among survivors of domestic violence than women who have not been abused. And we found that within the services, those needs were not being dealt with. And that's not a criticism. It's simply the fact that your uh, average support worker or average um, uh, advocate isn't trained in, in any kind of psychological work. So we developed a program, and this was Roxanne Agnew-Davies who developed it, who's an a eminent psychologist who's done work around, around domestic abuse. And it was a training program for advocates and support workers. In other words, for um, people who are already in the system providing support, but giving them extra skills around the psychological needs of their clients. And we then tested this in a randomized controlled trial. We did it because we're interested in trying to have the least biased way of assessing whether a program is actually effective. And what we did is we um, randomized women to either getting normal advocacy and support, and this was done in Cardiff Women's Aid and in NextLink in Bristol. And... If they're randomized to the other group, they got this extra help from the specialist psychological advocate, the SPA. Now, a SPA is, in essence, a, uh, a support worker or advocate who has had this additional training. And we then 
followed those women up for a year. And there, in all, there were um, over 250 women who were recruited, um, about um, a, a third from, um, from, from refuges and a third and two thirds from community support and randomized into these two, two arms. The follow-up for a year was particularly interested in measuring their, their mental health. And we used two measures that aren't particularly important to specify what they were, but one was certainly focusing on depression, and the other one was more focused on general um, psychological well-being. So could you tell me a bit about what the key conclusions were? The key conclusion was that this intervention, this program works. So that the women who um, just got advocacy and and high quality advocacy um, had uh, higher um, depression scores and higher psychological well-being scores than the women who got the, the, the spa intervention. So the women who got the spa intervention did better in terms of their mental health and psychologically. That's great. I was wondering if you could describe a, a bit more about what the SPA role actually entails. So how is it different to the traditional IDVA role? The, the SPA role is an extension of the traditional, by now traditional, IDVA or uh, advocate or support worker role. Because of the ability through training and, and also through clinical supervision to work with a client around her anxiety, around her PTSD symptoms, around her um, her fears and her, her sort of psychological fragility, if you like, or frailty, um, that is a consequence of, of the abuse. And um, it's a non-pathologizing way of facing up to what are symptoms of, of, of mental health problems. And it's not that we were training the the spas to become psychologists because the, the training wasn't long enough for that. But we gave them the confidence to to tackle some of those issues. And the the training gave them a, like a toolkit for ways of doing that. And it had elements of CBT in it. It had um, elements of feminist psychology in it. So it was a sort of hybrid intervention, which was manualized. So it was, you know, very um, structured. But an important aspect of it was that the spa always started from where the woman was. And it, the woman helped prioritize what issues or symptoms or psychological problems should be tackled. And so in that sense, it was... Um, it was perhaps different from conventional CBT, which has a much more preset structure. Essentially, we were um, equipping the um, spas with with tools so that they didn't have to avoid this major consequence of, of domestic violence. That's brilliant. That was exactly about to be my point, is it's actually allowing workers to have the tools to tackle these issues mm. where they see them rather than a completely new role yeah. that you're bringing into these services. Yeah. So what are your hopes for the project now that you have published the paper? Are there plans to roll out further work? 
So before I answer the question about what our next steps is, I just want to make a point that we're actually talking about two papers here. So we're talking about a conventional randomized controlled trial paper, which measures an effect size and does a statistical analysis to do that. But we're also talking about a, a rather kind of wonderful qualitative um, study that was nested within the trial where uh, the researcher, uh, Maggie, talked to women when they were still in the early stages of getting the intervention, and she then followed up a proportion of those women to get their stories about what it was like to um, to take part in, in PATH. She also talked to some women um, who who dropped out to make sure that we weren't getting a totally Pollyanna view of, oh, how wonderful this is. I mean, we're as researchers, we're really interested in getting as near to the truth as possible. I'm not saying other evaluators don't do that, but, you know, we, we want to look at, at any work warts and all and look at what's strong about it and what's not so strong. So in the qualitative paper, you actually hear the voices of the women who are exposed to the intervention, uh, to use a rather cold word of, of exposure, um, and many of whom very eloquently described how it affected their lives and how it helped them to come out of this um, very traumatized place that they were in when they first sought help. I and mean, first of all, it takes great courage to seek help anyway, as, as we know, in, in uh, around domestic violence and abuse. And once you've, you've managed to cross the threshold and, and begin getting that help, the fact that that help then included, without referral to a psychologist or a counselor, but included as part of the advocacy, psychological support, just made a, a tremendous difference. And for me, the effect size we measured in the trial um, is important, but the, the stories of the women who benefited from it is equally important. And in trying to really understand what PATH is about, I would argue that we need both of those perspectives. And, and that's one reason why we published the papers as sister papers together in the same online journal. And, and these papers are, there's no paywall. They're not behind a paywall. These are open access uh, papers, um, which we hope together will, will create the case for for this kind of intervention, this kind of program. So coming back to your the question, which is like, what are we going to do next? You know, are we going to just do another research study and, you know, and just forget about this because, you know, we've done our work as researchers, let the world do with it what they like. And no, we don't do that. Um, in our research group, we're really interested in um, taking the findings of research into the world and, and into practice and into, into policy. So we're in a cold commissioning climate at the moment, as you know. And domestic abuse services have suffered greatly from that. We are interested in putting this forward as a package which could be commissioned. We're interested in uh, taking the the model, the PATH model, and promoting it as a way of upskilling IDVAs, other support workers, and, and and you know domestic violence advocates. So that's our our next step, and um, it's. Uh, if doing research is uh, challenging, doing what's called knowledge mobilization, the fancy word for getting outside the ivory tower, is even more challenging, particularly when, um, despite what we're being told, austerity is still out there and it's still affecting the very services. So 
we want to ally ourselves with um, with services uh, in on the ground to talk to commissioners about making this part of their uh, part of what they're commissioning, part of their budget. And um, we know that services are very keen. For instance, Cardiff Women's Aid and NextLink, who are our research partners in this, are keen as mustard for it to be actually commissioned as something they can do. But it there is a cost involved. And um, part of what we haven't published yet, but we hope to sooner rather than later, is we're still doing an economic analysis, a cost-effectiveness analysis, to try to bolster the case that this is not just, you know, good to improve you know, psychological outcomes for survivors, but actually is, is a cost-effective thing to do. Yeah, it's spending money to actually help people to not rely on services in the future. Mm. That's the idea. Yeah. <laughs> but I, I can't, I'm not at liberty to disclose yet what the economic analysis is saying, because we're still working on it. And much easier to say than to do. <laughs> That's true, yeah. Um, so for IDVAs listening out there who are really keen to improve their mental health response but haven't had access to SPA training, are there any basic things that you would recommend they can read or access or learn to enhance their advocacy with victims of domestic abuse? That's actually quite a, a tough question um, because I'm not sure there's a shortcut to this. Uh, there was, you know, this is a training that takes weeks to do, not, not, not many months. So it's not like you have to go and get a degree in psychology. But I don't think there's a shortcut to that. I and mean, as it is, we pared the training down to, to the minimum that we thought was safe. So I wouldn't recommend learning some techniques to do a bit of psychological work with your, uh, with your clients. So for, you know, for an advert to do that, I think would be, problematic it might be problematic for the client but also for her because part of this work requires clinical supervision so the spas got clinical supervision from actually from Roxanne Agnew Davies mostly by phone um, but there's also some face-to-face um, support having said that I think reading up around the mental health dimensions of domestic abuse is something I would recommend to every IDVA, which if they haven't already done it, and I think even in IDVA training there's a reference to how impactful, in a bad way, um, domestic abuse is on mental health. There is a book, a short book, a thin book, called Domestic Violence and Mental Health, edited by um, Louise Howard and and me and Roxanne, which is, is worth a read because it really gives an insight into this um, overlap and interaction between domestic abuse and, and, and mental health problems. But in terms of actually enacting that and becoming more proficient about dealing with mental health problems in your practice as an IDVA, I think that that does require training. Obviously, we think PATH would be a, a good thing to do, but that, that needs to be commissioned. I guess one other thing I would say, because I know it sounds a little bit negative about, well, there's nothing you can do. I mean, I, I think being able to hear in your clients distress and indeed symptoms of mental health problems like, um, rumination, like flashbacks with PTSD, like anxiety. And you can even sometimes see that in, in, in the body language of your clients. I think if you observe that, my suggestion, and I would say this, wouldn't I, is that you um, you suggest to the client that, that, that she sees her GP. 
Um, and then she'll say, yeah, but it's a three-week um, wait to see them. And I'm afraid that's the, that's the situation we're in with general practice at the moment. But most GPs are experiencing mental health problems. Most GPs can help, um, particularly a client who's already getting support from an IDVA or indeed any uh, a domestic violence support worker. They're already getting help with their safety, maybe some help with their um, with legal issues, with housing. So for the, then the GP can focus on helping with, with some of the mental health sequelae of, um, of abuse in terms of referring to counselling when then hopes the counselling is trauma-informed. So there are other issues there about the competence of counsellors and psychologists around um, working with survivors. That's another research area we're interested in. But, but essentially, I think for the IDVA to signpost and not be slow to come forward to say, actually, I think you might benefit from some further support w- with your mental health, I would recommend doing that. Now, I expect every IDVA worth her salt is already doing that. But yes, that, that is something you can do. So I was thinking outside of the PATH project, um, you're based at the Centre for Academic Primary Care. Can you tell us about the work that's being carried out at the centre in relation to domestic abuse? We have a uh, domestic violence and health uh, group, research group, within um, the Centre for Academic Primary Care here in Bristol Medical School, which has a a wide-ranging research programme, mostly around the healthcare response. Not surprisingly, because we're based in a medical school, the healthcare response to domestic violence. Although we're also interested in some of the upstream kind of epidemiological work about the impact of domestic violence. So I'll just say a little bit about some of the other projects that that, that we're doing. Our sort of jewel in the crown of the work that we've done here around uh, the healthcare response to domestic violence is the IRIS program. So IRIS is a identification referral to improve safety. It's a program of training and setting up a referral pathway for general practices, which we tested in a randomized controlled trial, which is now a national program commissioned in about 35 areas in England and Wales. It's now um, embedded within a, a social enterprise called Iris I. And it's a unfortunately all too rare example of a research study which actually managed to get out into practice and policy um, on a national on a national level and we're very proud of that but we're very aware that it has limitations and particularly we're aware that it has limitations around um, addressing the needs of children exposed to domestic violence and men exposed to domestic violence and indeed men as perpetrators iris does not engage with that um, and of course, perpetrators are our patients too. As healthcare professionals, they, you know, we need to think about how we engage with them. So, thanks to the National Institute of Health Research, we have a five-year um, applied research program, which gives us funding to extend the scope of IRIS to take on the needs of children, uh, children exposed to domestic violence, and the needs of men. And we've just finished our two-and-a-half-year pilot phase of that. So it's again, it's a training intervention for practices, but trying to equip them to ask uh, about 
children being exposed and the impact on them and to ask men about whether they're worried about their behavior that would be perpetration or actually experiencing abuse from their partner whether it's a whether they're in a heterosexual relationship or a gay relationship so trying to include populations of people that were kind of excluded from the original concept of iris which was really focusing as it should have done and we were proud of on the needs of, of women survivors so we're we're the bottom line there we've not published this work yet but just as a sort of little uh, whiff of, of what we're finding is that um, we have managed to really get children into the picture and to refer them for further support in, in, in domestic violence agencies. Our partners are, our partner here is Next Link again, the, 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 the Bristol agency that has been the most stalwart collaborator with us over the years. We have not managed to find a way of identifying male survivors. I mean, there may not be that many male survivors, but the fact is we know there are men who are experiencing domestic violence who either have not been asked by their GP within this pilot or really didn't want to disclose. We have a, a male survivor um, uh, advisory group, a patient public um, involvement group, who've been working with us on why that is and how we can do better around identifying male um, survivors. We also haven't really managed to identify uh, perpetrators within the general practices. I mean, there were two who were identified and referred in to what we call the Iris Plus Hub, which can take referrals then for men and women and children. Uh, so we're working on how to improve the training around GPs talking to men, either survivors or perpetrators. But alongside that, we're now running a, a randomized controlled trial of a perpetrator program a group program based on, on respect standards and we've, we're working with respect as our collaborators to really measure and also through qualitative work find out you know the deeper stories the effect of a group on the behavior of men and particularly well obviously on the violent behavior of men and we're also recruiting their partners and or ex-partners as we'd like to measure that through their experience as well. Why are we doing this, given that perpetrator programs have been around since, you know, for donkey's years? Uh, well, because the evidence on perpetrator programs isn't that good. And I know that Safe Lives is, is doing excellent work uh, with other collaborators here in, in the University of Bristol on the DRIVE project, but it's just a sad fact that we don't have the confidence yet about what the actual magnitude of the effect is of perpetrator programs. So we're trying to test that in a sort of robust way with, with one year follow-up for the men and their partners and ex-partners. So that's work in progress. Is it linked to mental health? Well, you bet it is because a proportion, or it's a high proportion, I can't give you the numbers yet, of men who are in the program have some mental health symptoms. I'm not saying mental health conditions, but, you know, uh, you know, anxiety, low mood, um, some post-traumatic um, symptoms is very common among, among men perpetrating um, abuse. So mental health is in there. In fact, mental health is, you know, like the red thread through all our, our research because it's part of the, um, part of the reality, both for, for survivors and, and, and for perpetrators. 
the other work we're doing, which is mental health related, is we're developing a, um, a mindfulness-based intervention for survivors of domestic violence, women who have symptoms of PTSD. So we're in the early stages of developing that as an intervention uh, because the, um, the standard MBCT, say, a mindfulness-based cognitive therapy um, program isn't specifically trauma-informed, and there may be some aspects of MBCT which actually isn't appropriate if you've survived, you know, rape and assault and and, and emotional humiliation. You know, you, it, it may not work for you. And that, and we're now developing a, a form which we which is trauma-informed, and we will obviously be trying to test to see whether it has the effect that we think it does. There's work around um, supporting friends and family, so um, Alison Gregory, one of the researchers here, has worked up um, a approach to understanding the needs of friends and family, and we're interested in, in extending that work. We have um, other work looking at the impact of domestic violence intergenerationally. So in Bristol, we're the curators of, of ALSPAC data, that's children of the 90s, a cohort of children who then and now have their own children, so we're in the second generation. And Alspach has measured domestic violence from, from the get-go. I was very um, far-sighted of the, of the researchers way back then when nobody was measuring domestic violence in these cohort studies. And what we're, we've just got a grant now um, from the Medical Research Council looking at intergenerational effects of, of domestic violence and looking at issues around resilience. And again, mental health is writ large in that because ALSPAC measures everything very um, forensically. And one thing they've measured uber forensically is, 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 is mental health and psychological health. And then, and finally, our work recently is looking outwards towards, towards Europe. Um, moment of silence for Europe, anyway, um, and, and, and to the, to the rest of the world. Um, so we're collaborating with researchers in, um, in European countries around adaptions of the IRIS program, particularly in, um, in antenatal clinics, and that's in Romania and Austria, France and, uh, Germany, uh, and Spain. And now we're doing work in four low and middle income countries, um, Palestinian territories, Brazil, Nepal, and Sri Lanka, again, trying to adapt. It's all about the healthcare response. So working with in primary care clinics or in reproductive health settings, trying to find ways of training the, the clinicians there and linking them to, it varies, but we, in some clinics they're called case managers. So like the equivalent of an IDVA, uh, working within the clinic. Uh, kind of the equivalent of an IDVA working in, in hospital, hospital IDVA, to, to support survivors. But because those cultures are very different and the healthcare structures are so different, I kind of feel like I've gone right back to the bottom of the learning curve about that because there's so much to understand how that works. And we're doing that with researchers and activists and service providers in those countries. So our role is just to um, not in a kind of neo-colonial way to drop down this, oh, this wonderful model we should you think you should be doing it, it's about supporting them to do the development and the research, which is uh, country-specific. So that, yeah, that's what we're up to. Lots of, um, and I've probably forgotten about <laughs> half a dozen, but apologies to my colleagues who I've managed to somehow skip over. But that's the, um, 
that's the sort of scope of the kind of work we do here. That's fascinating. And it kind of shows how, you know, you talked about kind of with the IRIS program and then actually branching out because GPs can be so important in terms of the identification. Mm. Yeah kind of of victims and yeah. therefore helping them get support before they actually have to reach out to a service and yeah. before they get to that crisis point yeah. so thank you so much that was brilliant Jean okay. um, really appreciate taking your time to speak to us and good luck like, yeah good luck <laughs> with all the future work thank you <laughs> cheers thanks for that